Welcome back to the Future of Feeling podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Ugalik Phillips, and I'm bringing you interviews with some great minds helping build empathy in our tech-obsessed world. Today's show is the first of two parts of an interview with Gawain Morrison, an empathic AI producer and strategist who also has a lot to say about the collection and use of human data. Among other things, we use a Marvel Universe analogy to help me, and maybe you, understand what this stuff is all about. We could have talked all day, honestly. Ultimately, we talked for a little over an hour, and I just couldn't bring myself to pare it down. He has such great insight into human-computer and human-human relationships, and he's got a much-needed international perspective as well. Okay, here we go. Self-driving cars, robustness thresholds, empathy, let's do it. That's great. It's nice to connect with you again. Um, I know there have been some pivots in the world and in mm. your life and everyone's mm. life. I, I, Since we last talked, I published the book and then exactly one year later to the day I had a baby. So oh, congratulations, boy or girl? You. A girl. Her name is Rosemary. Very um, nice. But it was, I didn't even realize like, what are the odds that it would happen in exactly one year later? <laughs> Yeah, that was that was interesting timing. Yeah, <laughs> there are a lot of pandemic babies out there, um, aren't there? Aren't there? <laughs> it's been absolutely a interesting time. Yes, yes, yes. I think we've got ourselves a beautiful polar opposite world now of ones and others, and I think it's unlocked everybody's um, all the things where people maybe were a bit more moderate with each other <clears throat> on all topics of conversation. Mm-hmm. Have now become binary, yeah. So it's a it's a lot of free flowing of well, fuck you. It's uh, very much us or and them, and that's on both sides of the table. And I do not know how we fix this quickly. Yeah, it's- and I think both of us live in places where that's there's been a long history of that on certain issues, but maybe not on every issue, right? Yeah. And yeah. now it's yeah. I don't know either, and I it's interesting. I had someone that I'm working with on another project, read my book recently. And he kind of wrote me a very detailed review and critique and was kind of criticizing the optimism that I had. And I was like, well, Hmm. I did write this book probably three years ago now, if I wrote it, you know, now Hmm. things would be a little different because of course my perspective has changed a bit as you know, we had the 2020 election in the U S you had Brexit, you, you saw how all of that was affected by social technology and now the pandemic. And I tried to not be, you know, just like a tech cheerleader. I I didn't feel that way at all. Um, But it is hard. I tried to focus on hope and it is definitely hard to have hope sometimes when you see the way that these platforms are used to spread fear and misinformation and division. And then the people who run them are just like, well, that's not our problem, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, part of the reason for doing this is to try and do a little bit of an update on how the world has changed over the past few years and how the people who are working in the sort of empathy and tech space are adapting. Um, so we've already been recording for a little bit, um, but if you could give a quick intro, kind of tell yeah, us yeah, who you are. Definitely what you do. Um, and I guess you can kind of explain a little bit of your pivot over the past couple of years. Yep. Sounds good. Sounds good. <clears throat> so I'm Gowan Morrison. 
I'm uh, I was CEO of a company called Sensum for the last 10 years, uh, which specialized in empathic technology. And we roll this out uh, across arts, sciences, um, brand engagements, services, uh, all manner of ways that people can interact with their own human self data and pass that back into the engagement. Um, we started out with uh, producing the world's first emotional response horror film in 2011. We premiered that at South by Southwest. And for that, we were just enjoying ourselves, making this cool new interactive kind of entertainment and experience um, as a piece of art. Uh, from that, it actually led us into doing, um, we were focusing on human on-body biometrics, so like the heart rate or skin conductance and how that change, uh, we could see, we could derive insights from that and could be useful. And it largely focused on market research to begin with, uh, which then proceeded into doing uh, more brand engagements and interactive experiences because we could move from the data that we'd found in the market research and bring that across to something that actually had a real world use. And then that really opened up the doorway for us to be able to start to play with new kinds of media, new kinds of human machine interfacing. And over the last three to four years, we were specializing largely in the domain of automotive uh, because of the move in Europe uh, part of the global NCAP and the Euro NCAP um, attempt to bring road deaths down and fatalities down mm -hmm. by 50% in Europe by 2030 and worldwide by 2050. Uh, we were focusing on the mandatory requirements for driver monitoring systems, which then used human biometrics. But I should say, in all of this journey, we never ever thought that one type of human body data was the gold standard, the the silver bullet that told you everything. Because what we learned as we went through all of this was that other people were better at making the in touch point, the hardware, the software to do the, the analysis of that single data stream. And we were better at aggregating it all to be able to derive uh, insights from and use it. And that could be human data or it could be context data. Um, but we thought of ourselves as kind of like the, the brain that would then in, take this in process it to derive an insight and output something of use. Mm -hmm. And some of that was with autonomous vehicles? Yeah, well, we were experimenting with, uh, with Volvo in regards to the, the, it was the safety handover point. So it was, when when should a car take control and, you, and uh, if you're offering it? And when should it hand it back to you? And how can it work out that it's a safe time to hand it back to you in that sort of assisted driving rather than a fully autonomous driving environment? We had done some uh, work with them and they had done some separate research on looking at how do people respond to the car driving itself. And uh, obviously it's a sliding scale, but wherever, if you were really quite cool about it, then it was fine. Off it went and you were going, wow, it's kind of cool. And most people that were more on the edge of this is unnerving would after a wee while settle and go, okay, well, this is okay. We haven't crashed yet. And, and they would relax over a period of time. There was sort of a half-life of their stress and it would come off and they'd be fine with it. Um, obviously the car never went into trying to do something that freaked them out in that particular thing. But um, but what was interesting was um, how ready people were to be able to hand over uh, their, their control, I suppose. And actually this is the foundation of everything to do with human data and probably what the rest of this conversation might end up becoming, which is, uh, are you in control of where your data goes and have you been asked to cede that control 
Have you been given a freedom of choice to be able to give that control back to whoever it is? And in that transaction, there is your trust um, relationship for your data transaction. If you don't have that, then it's being taken without asking or you've given it away, but you're not really happy about it, but you've no choice or it won't work. Then we're into a different space where you aren't actually fully in control. Yeah, so it's kind of talking about consent, enthusiastic consent for giving that data. And I want to be clear too, that we're not just talking about like the make and model of your car or your phone number. We're talking about biometric data, correct? So what what is that? Absolutely. What kind of data is that? Um, and how is it collected? Yeah, so in car, uh, we already have it in quite a lot of the sort of top end cars where it's uh, microphones and cameras that are doing, um, for you to be able to do the hand-free conversation with your phones or whatever, but they've already got voice control there and cameras to be able to tell whether you're falling asleep at the wheel. Uh, those have existed for a while and they're only going to become more prevalent, um, especially with the mandatory requirements by 2025 for all new vehicles to have driver monitoring systems in Europe. So that's the first sort of set of data types that you'll see is the cameras and the microphones and the cameras are looking for uh, gaze and plot. Are you paying attention to the road? And also the higher resolution ones for pupil dilation, for cognitive load. Um, beyond that, though, there, there's quite a lot of work going into the likes of uh, biometric radar um, and infrared technologies that are looking at different kinds of, of human insights and human feelings and human states. And all of these largely in the first instance are for safety. They're all looking at, uh, have you fallen asleep? Are you getting tired? Are there early warning signals? Are you looking at your phone rather than the, the road? Are you about to have some road rage? And they're all genuine uh, human benefits. Whether you want the car to take over control for me is a completely different conversation, but identifying them to mitigate against road deaths and fatalities, valid, very valid. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a hell of a capital outlay for the car companies and all the, the, as you see already at the moment, in the auto industry, there's massive problems with getting access to the chips. There's a massive um, problem in the flow of, of, of technology and chips because everybody now wants a chip to be able to do some processing in their machines. And the more sensors you have, the more it needs to do this. These are all challenges that car companies have not dealt with before in terms of software and hardware and engineering. Um, but beyond that, they, need, they want to be able to spend the money and make the money back. So they're looking at other ways they could make money. So what can they do with the data? Can they offer you personalized services? If uh, you drive a certain route over and over, do they offer up something where they're saying, well, there's this, this hotel that you seem to go past every single day. They're offering something useful. You look like you're tired. Why did you go and stay there tonight? Mm -hmm. And these are different kinds of ways that the auto industry is looking at being able to use data as data brokers. Um, but then we're back to the same challenge. Who owns the data? Have you given them the, that is it useful to you? Um, are you happy to take it back? Where does it go if you do take it back? Do they keep it? You know, all these things are still unknown mm. and might not be solved very easily. One thing that I always wonder in conversations like this is, especially with facial recognition and you know the looking at the pupils, facial expressions, that sort of thing. Um, do we even know how accurate? that technology is, you know, people have different facial types, people have, you know, 
different face shapes, different physical or emotional disabilities that might make them make different faces or look differently? Or how does all of that come into play or does it? Are those also still unanswered questions? Oh, no, no, they, they are. They're a very important question and they're regularly asked with very few people telling you the truth. The, the reality is you need volumes of data as training data sets for your AI to work. It doesn't matter what your AI is supposed to be doing. And to be able to do human data um, AI, which then actually can identify robustly a human state, you need to have, uh, in the training sets, have stimulated that particular human state to, to a large enough cohort of individuals that's repeatable and identifiable. And only at that point, then, can you move forward. But really, if it's human emotional states or human states as a whole, you also then need human verification to do the labeling to make sure that there's a, a second set of checks against the data that you're not just letting your uh, algorithms and your training models run rampant without somebody going, let's just double check that. And if, you're, if you have deep enough pockets, you'll probably go for a third step and you'll re-verify before you go public with it. And then you have a level of robustness. And internally at Sensor, we used to call it the robustness threshold. Uh, which was to get to that point where you could have maybe 70, 80, an arbitrary percentage, but a higher percentage than 50, 50. Um, a robustness threshold where you could go, okay, well, it's repeatable, repeatable for quite a large cohort. Here's demographic split that we've got across. And now I'll put it into the field. And at the point of putting it into the field, that's when you then look for uh, much larger access to data pools of people and you're doing live data gathering and evaluation in the field then for getting it much more robust but you'd have to be public and state what level of robustness and repeatability it has and this is where most companies fall because it's a commercial decision at that point you're trying to convince somebody to buy your technology you don't want the competitors to be able to turn around and go well they've only got 500 people through it we've put 5,000 people through it and you lose your deal so people don't want to, when they're doing business on this, be particularly, they're, they have to be vocal about it, but they're vocal in a one-to-one -one meeting perspective. They're not putting it out there to go, hey, listen, here's what the um, European Union have stated is the most important data robustness threshold. Uh, go. It's, not, it's all driven by commercial deals. The verification that you're talking about and getting to the robustness threshold, is that based on, like, is the technology correctly identifying mental states it, and like what would that be based on because people you know yeah. some people have like you hear people talk about resting bitch face right and like <laughs> if i have rbf <laughs> doesn't mean i'm actually angry you know <laughs> <laughs> so this is where you've got to have a degree of baseline so you'd have a general a general uh, sort of bell curve 65 70 percent you'd go okay this is done our best at this point, but the amount of money and resource that we have to be able to identify this, what really companies should be doing at that point without giving away their algorithmic holy sort of secret sauce, holy grail stuff, is to go, here are the training data sets we used. This is why we did it. This is how we did it. This is where our, our biases are, we mm -hmm. believe, and this is how we're going to address them. And it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be commercial suicide. It would actually be a, a trusting position so that uh, you're being a lot less black boxed the people who are going to buy your technology, which are the large global brands, are going to go, well, okay, I'm more comfortable about this now. I can see it. And that you maybe open it up for peer review so that you can have the community go, actually, it looks like within this segment of your, sec 
society, or in those particular use cases, it drops way below your robustness threshold, go again. But it's... it's um, Is anyone doing that peer review? Yeah, there's plenty of academics that are doing peer review, and there's quite a lot of companies that are doing work along with universities to, to attempt to get this, or our university spin-outs who have come from that mentality that are trying to sell their services. But you find that there's sort of this bit in the middle, which is where the majority of people sit and where you're trying to do business, where you're not a university spin-out and you're not just a startup that's cash rich because you've had your investment and you're not a super company that's protective over telling anybody anything. The majority of people sit in the middle there, which is we're trying to build a company, we're getting going, we've come out of university, we're looking for stuff and we don't have enough money to bankroll getting enough data in the training data sets. Why is keeping a team and growing it? Why is being able to do some business and sell what we're servicing and be able to specialize in getting the product better and keep going toward being public and doing what we need to do about this or not. And all of those things can only really be done if you've got a huge chunk of change behind you, which means you end up back with either a university that may never ever commercialize it and doesn't have the same understanding maybe of commercial pressures or a super company who everybody doesn't want to have the technology. It's kind of scary to think that that's where um, this technology that's going to be directly affecting or already is directly affecting people's bodily lives mm. is happening that there it is it's kind of scary to put to put our our safety on the road um, and elsewhere in the hands of the people with the with those who have those very specific priorities right yeah again no in the history of all things it's always been the case no, the guys weren't sitting there uh, in the early industrial lines of getting the cars out in the road going, oh, we really must make sure we spend all that money and come up with a safety belt that will stop people going over the top of the windshield. Or, you know, it, it, it's an invention. The invention has uh, engineering or science behind it. It has a, an ability for somebody to be able to commercialize it and to produce it in repeatable fashion. And as people start to interact with it and the dangers are highlighted and alerted, then that's when all of the legislations kick in or the deals are done with companies to help together figure out ways to make it better. So I don't think, I don't think it's ever been any different. I think the, um, the, the, the different flavor on this one is that it's, it feels like it's a lot more invasive to ourselves, And as such, we want it to be absolutely correct. Why it's not really really truly understanding us it's that sort of dichotomy on those um but the other part of it is we've now lost trust we've lost trust because of cambridge analytica and facebook we've lost trust because uh apple are talking about taking your cloud photos to to scan them for everything uh why it's done to the guise of a, a genuine issue of, of child um entrapment or pornography and, and, and trafficking they're changing the rules of the game for how to access us on the cloud without having asked. They just said, this is how we're doing it. And this, I think, is comes back to what we talked earlier about, which is, have, has, have they asked you? I mean, it might be genuinely useful. You might be well up for it. Have they explained the art of the possible and the options on the table? And are you prepared to kick in? And they could do it so simply. All these guys have a doorway to your, to your human life. They could put a message up on your phone or send you a message or uh, give you an update in an app to say, listen, these are 
these are things we're going to try and do in English um, or whatever yeah, language you speak. Whatever language they not want. Not in yeah. tech speak. <laughs> yeah, it could be a simple survey. This is what we're planning on doing. Um, we understand that there's some complexities to this. We understand that uh, there are going to be concerns. We're not going to necessarily change what we're doing, but we would like to know your opinion. Um, please, can you can you supply what you think? And if you don't supply what you think, you've got no grounds to slabber at us about it. Hmm. And it would be very simple. And they've said, this is what we're doing. Uh, if you don't want to go with us after you've uh, we, you've told us what you want to do, that's totally fine. That's your commercial decision. And your not burying right. it. I think I think that is to an extent what they do, but it's buried under. You have to scroll through all the text and legalese, right, and then just click agree. Um, but you're saying yeah, too that even after you click agree, they can change things. That's part of what you're agreeing to, <laughs> right? Oh, absolutely, and, and it would be commercial suicide for them to hang themselves on it. But they could, they could very easily have a conversation. I mean, the thing is, this is the other thing. It's all about relationships. I have a relationship with uh, some social networks. Some I distaste, I have a distaste when I use them. Some I enjoy thoroughly using. Some I just use them for my storage. So I've got somewhere that they're all safe. And some I like to share and, and see what my mates or my family or other people are doing. So I, I have a relationship and there's slightly different um, reasons to be in each of them. But I, I do trust some of them. Um, quite a lot of them, actually. And uh, I wish I did have trust in them. Uh, it would be a very, there's no relationship as such. It is a, we're the provider, you're the user. Mm -hmm. There's nothing of an empathic nature in that relationship other than we know you need us or want us and you're going to pay for it or we're going to take your data and sell it. Right. And you talked about how it's always been that way, but about how it feels different now because it feels more personal, right? And then you just brought up empathy. So can you talk a little bit about why that is important to you? And does it feel uniquely important in this stage or has that always been, you know, at the dawn of cars, television, et cetera, or is it uniquely important now? I think it's always been, I think actually empathy has always been there in terms of design and UX, even before UX was termed a thing. You understand your customer. You understand your customer and you and you can deliver on what they need and understand what they're feeling uh, or what they what pain points you're solving then you're empath you're empathic to your customer base you change your product accordingly or your service and away you go so i think it's always been there it's just not been labeled in such a way um and even with the the, the term empathic technology i mean it's gone through so many iterations i mean before this is effective computing, you know, you, you, go, you go back and there's there's different ways of explaining what it does. Again, though, interpreting some some problem or interpreting what people say they need is one thing. And somebody might just be very, very empathic and very, very good at understanding what challenges there are, or what way to be able to solve something. We're moving now to an age where the machines I, and I want to be careful about this. It's not that the machines will know what's going on in your head because they won't. They won't actually even have necessarily a great history of how to tailor everything towards you. So when we say empathic technology, it's just been a bit good at being able to jump together and go, your heart, went, heart rate went up, your camera saw you were drinking a cup of coffee and you've got a meeting in 15 minutes. So it's probably that your head's completely on a different space and you're charging. And if somebody comes in and tries to ask you questions, now you're going to tell them to sling their hook. You know, they, 
That's not a difficult algorithm to write. It just needs access to those data points. But to understand all the motivations, to appraise you and your world, to be able to get all the variations of whether it, should, it is rest and bitch face or it's not, whether actually Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Mondays are particularly bad days for you and they just rinse and repeat that and why, understand why and do something about it. Those are, those are empathic solutions that would require a lot more understanding of you. And therein then we must have a relationship. You must have trust just like you would with a friend or family member for you to be able to trust enough to give enough to get the value back. I think that's where we are now. That's it for part one of my interview with Gawain Morrison. Part two is coming next week. Thanks so much for listening to the Future of Feeling podcast. As a reminder, this is a limited series right now, and I am the sole producer. I'd love to keep making it, and you can help by following on Spotify and sharing with a friend or two. You can also send feedback, questions, and guest suggestions by heading to caitlinugalik.com. That's K-A-I-T-L-I-N-U-G-O-L-I-K.com, and click the email me button. Talk soon.